The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Today's teaching is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's one of the most significant interchanges in all of the Bible that Jesus has with anybody else. In this interchange, we encounter a man who is good in reputation, good in character, and successful in life. In other words, we encounter a man who could easily be from five points Raleigh. And yet this man, for all of his good character, all of his earthly success, leaves Jesus sorrowful. How does a man, with all of this going for him, end up leaving Jesus sorrowful? And what can we learn from that today? Now, I'm committed, honestly, to preaching through books of the Bible in their entirety because Paul in Acts 20 says, I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. So I was going to preach Matthew 19 no matter what. (laughs) But the fact that God ordained it for homecoming, I think, is very providential for this reason. As churches age it becomes easier and easier and easier to slightly forget the gospel, to slightly warp Christianity, and before long, you lose it. In today's passage, we will see with great clarity what Christianity is in contrast to something very close, but not quite Christianity. Look with me in God's word in Matthew 19 as we carefully unpack Jesus' teaching here in verse 16 through 30. Beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And we can't move very quickly because this question is loaded. First, he calls Jesus teacher. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll notice that anytime someone calls Jesus teacher, they're saying something that's accurate but woefully inadequate. Jesus is surely much more than teacher. But notice now what the man says. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, these are some common misconceptions of almost Christianity. What must I do means the man thinks he can do this. What good deed means the man thinks he can do things that are truly good. To have eternal life means that he thinks eternal life can be earned. Now, all three of these assumptions are actually undercut even from the Old Testament from which we're about to realize this man was thoroughly acquainted. We know from the Bible, what must I do? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, Titus 3, 5. By works of the law, no one will be justified, Galatians 2.16. But even just in the Old Testament, what good deed must I do? Do you know Ecclesiastes 7.22? There is not a righteous person upon the earth who does good and does not sin. Or do you know Isaiah, uh, which tells us in um, chapter 64, verse 6, all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. In fact, When Romans 3 says there is no one who does good, it's quoting Psalm 14, verse 1, and Psalm 53, verse 1. But this man thinks he can earn eternal life. When Isaiah 59, 2 tells us your sins have created a separation between you 
and God. This man's question then is loaded with misconceptions. So let's see how Jesus answers it in his love and mercy. Jesus is going to answer in verse 17, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now this man, for all his misconceptions, has asked really the most important question, how can I have eternal life? But he's wrongly understood how it's achieved. Jesus in John 17 verse 3 explains eternal life in my favorite explanation of it. He says, this is eternal life, to know God and to know him whom he sent to know Jesus. But this man is still thinking that it can be achieved. And so Jesus' answer plays with this man's assumptions. If you think you would enter life, keep the commandments. Notice verse 17 carefully. I want to point out a few things to you. First, the man, Jesus says to the man, why do you ask me. Now, don't forget, the man called Jesus a teacher, which is an English word for rabbi. There were lots of rabbis available that the man could go to. Why did he choose Jesus? Why did he come to Jesus thinking that he's just a normal teacher? What about Jesus has compelled him to come? See, Jesus is trying to drive him to the right answer. Verse 17 then continues, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus is trying to show the man, you have some assumptions about what it means to be good, but let me challenge you on those assumptions. What is the standard of goodness? How do we determine what is actually good? Jesus gives him an answer. There's only one who's good. And who is it? Well, he's going to make the man think about it. And so he says, if you would enter a life, keep the commandments. Jesus essentially is saying this, there's only one who's good, and hint, he's in this conversation, and double hint, he's not you. (laughs) So if you'd enter life, keep the commandments. These commandments are meant to reveal something to this man. But Jesus does something extremely interesting that I spent all week chewing on. Jesus only lists a few of the commandments. Why select just certain ones? Look in verse 18. The man said to him, well, which ones? Which ones do I have to keep? How can I earn it? Jesus chooses specific ones. Jesus said, you shall not murder. Maybe you know your Ten Commandments. That's the Sixth Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. That's the Seventh Commandment. You shall not steal. That's the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness. That's the Ninth Commandment. But then he doesn't go to the Tenth. He jumps back to the Fifth Honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment. And then Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quote of Leviticus 19.18, a common summary Jesus gives. Wait, what's in common about all these commandments? Commandments five through nine. Why didn't he give one through four? Why didn't he give number 10? What's different about one through four and 10 verses five through nine? The fifth through ninth commandments are all commandments that you can see. They're all the ones that make it visible. Because Jesus is showing this man something that he has done that we are in danger of doing too. Have you noticed what we do as humans when we determine which of us are good humans and which of us are bad humans? We look at what we can see and then we have a horizontal dividing line. Good people, this side. Bad people, this side. Jesus wants to show this man that he's drawing the dividing line on the wrong spectrum. The dividing line isn't horizontally cutting humanity into good people and bad people. The dividing line is vertically cutting between God and everybody else. 
So when Jesus gives this man the, the commandments that can be seen, the man thinks, surely I'm still good. So look in verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Now please don't forget the context. This, Jesus just said to this man, there's only one who is good. And this man's response is, well, then you must be talking about me. Because <laughs> if there's only one who's good, I've kept all these. But yet the man knows there's something he still lacks. So in all the horizontal commandments, this man sincerely believes. Sure, I've honored my mom and dad. I've not stolen anything. I've not committed adultery. I've not murdered anyone. Now, those of you who've been here for a while, you're probably thinking, well, what about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? If you hate someone in your heart, if you lust in your heart, you can, you can break these commandments even internally. But Jesus hasn't led this man there yet. He wants this man to realize that he's constructed his goodness in reference to what other people see. His goodness is in reference to comparing himself with others. Perhaps you've come in here today thinking the same thing, thinking I'm a good person. Of course I'm a good person. Compare me to anybody else. Compare me to what I used to be. I'm a good person. Jesus is trying to lovingly lead him to realize you've made the comparison against the wrong point. Yeah, compared to other people, yeah, you're probably pretty good. Compared to what you used to be, sure, you might be pretty good. But yet the man realizes, even though I feel affirmed against my peers, there's something I still don't have. So notice the end of verse 20. What do I still lack? So I am a good person, I think. I'm successful. I live well. So what, what am I missing? Maybe you're in the same boat this morning. You're respected by others. You have good character. You're successful in your career. You feel like you're a good person, but you know deep down there's something that you know is missing. So look how Jesus answers in verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect. Now, don't trip over that word. He's using it in context. The man just said, I'm missing something. Here's what Jesus means. If you want to not, no longer miss anything, if you want to be complete and whole, no longer missing something deep down, here's what you need to do. Jesus now puts this man in a crossroads. If you would be complete and whole and not missing anything, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Jesus is saying something specific to this man. I don't know anyone else in the Bible anywhere where Jesus tells them to give away everything they have. Jesus has identified something specific to this man that would keep him from following Jesus. And to this man, he says, give up everything, come with nothing, and find me. Don't miss, it's not really about what you have to leave. It's about who you would receive. Look in verse 21. Give away everything you have and come follow me. Jesus is telling the man, if you would come with nothing, for the first time in your life, you would find everything. Here's a man who knows he's missing something, but he has to give up the pretense of what he thinks he has to finally gain everything. See, this man is wealthy in two key respects. He is materially wealthy, he has great possessions, but more than that, he 
is morally wealthy. He's wealthy in his reputation. He's wealthy in the image he's constructed for himself. And as long as he stands on his own merits in that self-assured safe haven of the construct of his own identity, he is far away from the shores that Jesus calls him to, to the deep where there is no security but Jesus. This man's whole life, he's thought of life this way. Well, there are good people and bad people, and I'm one of the good people. There are successful people and unsuccessful people, and I'm one of the successful ones. And Jesus says, what if you lost all of that, but you gained me? How will the man respond? Jesus has put him at a crossroads, a fork in the road. See, at this point, Jesus has already crushed two common misconceptions. As I said in the beginning, just getting something slightly wrong can have tremendous effects long-term. Yesterday, I was driving around Raleigh, and I drove by a church. And in front of the church, they had those lawn signs in the ground. And the lawn sign said this, free COVID shots. And when I saw those lawn signs, I thought, what if somebody forgot to print the last word? (laughs) And the sign just said, free COVID. I think that would tremendously affect the way people viewed that sign. Just one word makes a tremendous difference. The misconceptions this man has are two, and they're very common today. Here's what I think they are. First, he believes Christianity is something you can add. And second, he thinks Christianity is something you can do. These are two common misconceptions that exist today. First, that Christianity is something you can add. This man thinks like many people think, if you're cooking a meal and you want to change it a little bit, just add a little bit of spice. And then if you like the taste, maybe that'll be good for you. Many people approach Jesus the same way. Jesus, I already have my life and I've already constructed it essentially how I want to, but maybe you could kind of hop in and add a little spice to it. But Christianity is not an addition of a little spice of Jesus. Christianity is an entirely new recipe where there's an entirely new chef who cooks something entirely different. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it when he was making an image of the sun, S-U-N. C.S. Lewis wrote this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In the same way, Jesus is telling this man, you can't add Christianity. You can't add Christ. You can only be revolved and revolutionized by Christ. It's like when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus tells him, you have to be born again. Not only is Christianity not something you can add, secondly, Christianity is not something you can do. The man came to him saying, what good deed must I do so that I can earn eternal life? I shared this with a few folks this week. Uh, This illustration really helped me a lot. David Platt was uh, on the other side of the world. He was at the base of some mountains, and there he saw a temple. And at the temple there, there were some different priests and religious leaders talking about how to have a relationship with God. And in the debate they were having, they were talking about, well, you know, you believe you can kind of do it this way, and you believe you can kind of do it this way, and you believe you can kind of do it this way, but really, we all end up at the same place. And David Platt looked at the priest there at the base of the mountain at the temple, and he said, so it sounds like you guys are saying 
that this mountain behind us, you could climb up this way or you could climb up that way or you could climb up that way, but all of us reach the top whatever route we take. And they said, that's exactly what we think. And he said to them, but, but what if I told you that God can't be reached by different routes up the same mountain, but in fact, God had to come down the mountain so that he could carry us up. See, Christianity is not something you can add, and Christianity is not something you can do. What this man needs to realize is when Jesus says there's only one who's good, it's not us. The line is not horizontal where there's some of us who are good and some of us who are not so good. The line is between us and God. There's God, and then there's everyone else. There's God alone who's good, and then there's the rest of us. So here's this man at a crossroads. Will he leave the safe haven of his security, confidence, and well-constructed identity? I'm successful. I have a good reputation. Would he abandon that to find Christ? Or will he keep what's comfortable? What would you do? Let's see what this man does in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this man came with a hollow heart. He knew he was missing something. But now he leaves with a heavy heart because he won't give up what he has. See, what this man hoped to hear is the answer so many of us hope to hear, that maybe he could have just added a little bit of Jesus to what he's already constructed. If Jesus had said, you need to give to the poor annually, but only in an amount that increases your view of your moral goodness, but doesn't put in jeopardy your material wealth, he would have jumped at the chance. But instead, Jesus says, no, you don't need to add a new spiritual discipline. You don't need to do a tremendous sacrificial deed. You need to come with nothing like a child, come poor in spirit, and realize you have nothing apart from me. The one thing the man was afraid to do. So why did the man leave sorrowful? Because Jesus pushed past the philosophical, theological debate and got to the particular idol that this man has. I've noticed in my own time with people, perhaps you've noticed this too, if you're sitting with someone, having a Bible study with them, trying to share Christ with them, as long as God is an intellectual debate, they're fine. But once you get to, you specifically have sinned against God, the conversation changes. If it's an idea of whether or not God exists or whether or not Christianity is good for the world or whether or not Christians are hypocrites or whether or not it has any social value, everybody's fine. But once it turns to you have sinned against your holy God, you have made an idol out of things that are not worthy of your worship, you must repent of those and turn to God in faith. Then the walls go up. Now for you, it may not be wealth. It may not be material possessions. But all of us need to come to grips with the fact that underneath all of our objections and complaints, they are actually just smoke screens because we have a power struggle with who will be God. Can God call us to come with nothing? Or is that beyond his purview? See, for Abraham, it was his beloved son, Isaac. For the Samaritan woman at the well, it was relationships with men. For this man, it's his reputation and his wealth. But for all of us, it's something. There's that thing 
that if I don't have that, I can't live. If I don't have people's approval, if I don't have power, if I don't have the affection of that individual, if I don't have this certain kind of life, without that, see, Jesus is pressing that pressure point. And so the man walks away sorrowful. But now Jesus turns to teach his disciples a remarkable principle. So verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This verse is so hard to hear that some commentators and theologians have attempted to soften it by saying, well, you know, outside the gates of Jerusalem, there was a little tiny door and your camel had to kneel down and crawl through it. And they're right that in the ninth century, there was a door like that, but that's about 900 years after Jesus was speaking here. Jesus is speaking exactly as bizarrely as you would think. He's talking about a little tiny sewing needle and a massive animal. The animal can't go in there. And so the disciples are shocked, as you might be as well, in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? I mean, this guy is the perfect candidate. Churches build themselves off of these kinds of people. He's successful. He's a great reputation. Don't you want him? See, what they thought is actually what a lot of us still think today. We assume that if you're successful and if you have material possessions, then you must have God's favor as well. If you do good, you'll do well. And if you do well, it's because you did good. So who can be saved, Jesus? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, the great news of the gospel is rich or poor, thinking that you're really good or realizing that you're not so good, God can save anybody, and we can save no one. This text gives us the encouraging reality that God reverses what seems irreversible. God opens what seems shut. God can get the camel through the eye of the needle but only he can. But now Peter, feeling a little bit overlooked, does what he normally does. He speaks up. (laughs) So verse 27, then Peter said in reply, well, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Don't forget what he's replying to. Jesus just said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, it's possible. But Peter says in reply, "But, but surely we've left a lot. It's kind of like, Saying, Jesus, look, we've given up stuff for you. Aren't you proud of us? Now try saying that to your wife this afternoon. Honey, aren't you proud of me? Look at everything I gave up to be with you. (laughs) Jesus wants them to know uh, what is the reality in terms of who's received the blessing in this relationship. So look in verse 28. Jesus said to them, well, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to be given this position that you, of course, don't deserve. 
Verse 29, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, you, you think you've sacrificed some things and, and some things you have. But look, for my name's sake, you'll receive a hundredfold. And, and this is key in this context, you'll receive eternal life. Is that not what the rich man came to get? He didn't get it. But they got it. Why? Because they contributed? Because they did something? No, because with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then he has this closing principle that topples all of our earthly evaluations. Verse 30, the many who are first will be last, and the last first. Many who we look at and put the yellow highlighter on, that's a prime candidate for a relationship with God never actually has eternal life. And many who we think, oh, they are so lost. There's no hope. Have you heard of Paul? (laughs) So the ones that we tend to think, oh, it's hopeless. God in his grace topples our sensibilities in his kingdom. Let me say it as simply as I can. God does not categorize people like we do. We draw our lines, good people this way, bad people this way. God knows what the line is. It's him and us, and yet in his grace, he comes down and rescues the likes of us. See, in this passage, the key question was, who is good? It wasn't the rich man. It was the man he was talking to. It's Jesus. Who's kept the commandments? It wasn't the rich man, (laughs) and it wasn't the disciples. It's Jesus. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, said Jesus. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in this passage, who's the first that became the last? And how did the last become the first? It's because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. The reason those of us who are last can become first is because the one who is first became last. This passage, there's a man who comes. He has moral goodness. He has a good reputation. He has a successful business. And he leaves sorrowful. But you don't have to. You can leave with the joy of knowing that if I have Jesus, No matter whatever else I lose, I have everything. But the only way you can receive that is if you will come with nothing. Let's pray and ask God to do that this morning. God, I thank you that Jesus Christ received children and told us that of that kind of character is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we must come as a child which means we must abandon our pride. So as long as we think of ourselves as, well, I'm a good person and I'm successful and compared to the people around me, I really would be a great catch. Then we remain outside the kingdom of God. You cannot be saved if you're upper middle class in spirit. You can only be saved if you're poor and bankrupt in spirit. 
So what a sad thing that both Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record. Here's this prime candidate, the rich young ruler who walks away sorrowful. And yet here's the kingdom full of Peter who ends up betraying Jesus on the night of his crucifixion, who almost always has something to say that needs to be corrected. But by the grace of God, has received a seat to judge the 12 tribes, has received a hundred times what he ever left, and gains eternal life. And such is the case for any of us who will come humbly enough to say, Lord, I need you. And I can't bring my accomplishments, and I can't bring my own reputation, and I can't bring my earthly success because none of it counts because the separation is between me and a perfectly holy God. So remind us today of the good news that the one who is good took all of our sin on him so that we could have our sin forgiven and have eternal life. Maybe someone today needs to, for the first time, ask Jesus to save them and receive eternal life. Give them the humility to do that. Help us as a church here on our 71st anniversary to never lose the simplicity of the gospel, something that can save childlike faith, but keeps out any who look to themselves. And this morning, as we fellowship over lunch, remind us of the great God we have who's given up everything so that we could find it by bringing nothing. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.